0: It's good, our Father, to be still and to know that you are God. We live busy lives, a lot of things to get done, a lot of details, a lot of challenges. And it's very easy for all of these things to to fill our days. And then we carry these things around in our back pocket that are constantly vibrating and uh, sending us alerts and letting us know of breaking news. And even when we have a day scheduled kind of to get away, a day off, a day of, well, somehow it it gets filled up. It is, it's very difficult. this day and age to be still for any amount of time. And you just don't tell us to be still, you tell us to be still and to know that you are God. In other words, you want us, because you're a good father, it is very helpful for us to shut out the the interruptions and the noise and the distractions and to remind ourselves that you were there and that you are active and that you are in our lives and that you are a savior and that you are a redeemer and that you are the God who not only forgives our sin but you forget our sin? Your sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more? What a great truth that is. The enemy is the accuser of the brethren. He's always bringing up our past. He's always bringing up things that we deeply regret and every one of us, Every every guy in this room has those things. But what a great God you are to not only forgive us through Christ, but to forget it. And that's why Paul could say forgetting what lies behind. As you forget, we're to forget. Not to camp on it not to go back over it. We are to forget what lies behind and press on to the high calling, of following the Lord Jesus. When we're in the past, it drains all of our energy. That's what regrets do. But... when we consider who you are and what you have done and what you have supplied to us. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That condemnation doesn't come from you, it comes from the enemy. And when we're condemned, we can't move. We can't can't go about our business with the energy that is needed because we're just emotionally depleted. So, tonight, our prayer is, Lord, that you would help us to forget what you have forgotten through the blood of Christ. And help us to focus on right now, right here, on your word, and we ask your spirit to teach us through your word. There are different needs here. You know every need, and you know every heart. Give us truth to fight off fear and anxiety and worry. And remind us tonight about your character and that you can be trusted and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working our way through the Gospel of John, and tonight we're in John chapter 4 a very famous story where Jesus meets the woman at the well. I was reading one commentator this week and he was talking about the Gospel of John and he, he was, basically he was saying the Gospel of John is, is so simple that a child can understand it. John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A, a child of six or seven can easily understand that. Some of you guys came to the Lord at that age. I did at seven. So I, it, it's, it's simple enough that a child can understand it, yet it's deep enough <laughs> that you could, uh, you'll never plumb the depths of it. I have a number of commentaries on the gospel of john and i was pulling one down and i saw one next to it that was quite thick and it said living water and i couldn't and i thought did i is that in the wrong on the wrong shelf and i pulled it down and it wasn't on the wrong shelf but it was i mean it was thick it was 64 sermons that martin lloyd jones preached at westminster chapel in the 50s on the woman at the well the woman at the well runs from john 4 verse 1 to verse 42 and he preached and lloyd jones would preach for an hour and he was one of those guys he could go an hour and nobody was looking at their watch I mean, he was gripping, he was captivating. I, I watched an eight-minute video this morning that he did back in the 50s. And he just didn't lose anybody. The guy was razor sharp. He, uh, he was compelling. You, you, you had to listen to him. You could not listen to him. If he's talking, you're going to listen. And he would preach for an hour, and he preached for 64 hours in the early 50s. 64 Sundays, on 42 verses. (laughs) So I've decided for the next 64 Wednesdays, (laughs) just kidding, we'll deal with it tonight and try to move on because our goal is to eventually get through the Gospel of John. Let me go ahead and give you the outline tonight, four points. I'm gonna use the word she, and I'm referring to the woman at the well, all right? So here you go, number one. In verses one to 14, she meets Jesus face to face. She meets Jesus face to face. Secondly, in verses 15 to 18, she meets herself face to face. Verse 1, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. I got to make a comment on that. He didn't have to pass. Samaria not to get to where he was going there were two other ways to get to where he was going there were two other routes to get into Galilee but you see he had to go he had to pass through Samaria because he was compelled because there was a divine appointment set by his father You ever ask the Lord to lead you, and and He will. And and sometimes it's surprising and it's unforeseen and it. But there was a divine appointment; He had to go through Samaria. And normally, as we mentioned last week, the Jews would not go through Samaria. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, he had probably walked over 20 miles, and it's high noon, was sitting thus by the well. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, why had they gone away to go buy food? Because he sent them away, because he knew there was a divine appointment. And he always did the will of his father, and it was the will of his father that he interacted with this woman. Interestingly enough, Jewish teachers, Jewish rabbis, would in public at this particular time not interact with women in public many of them would not even speak to their wives in public in a very distorted view of women they would certainly not speak with a samaritan woman in public they wouldn't even be in samaria there there there's a history between israel and the samaritans And the the history is one where the Samaritans were, uh, they were the untouchables. They were the ones who were the outcast. I I was reading, oh, in the past week or two about a very popular book. In 1918, just as World War I was wrapping up, there was an author in England who wrote a book about the Victorian age. Now, we still talk about Queen Victoria. I think there's some kind of popular series about Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert. You go to London today, you can go to the Albert and Victoria Museum. They, they were uh, in charge over that golden age of the Victorian age. Churchill was born in the Victorian age. Uh, And then he came into the modern age, but he came kicking and screaming because he loved the Victorian age so much. Uh, It it was uh, a time where the empire expanded. It was a time of great prosperity and great influence. It was just a very unique time. And there were heroes of the Victorian age, There was uh, Florence Nightingale, great woman, Christian woman, who did tremendous thing for soldiers in battle and alleviated the suffering of of a lot of people, not only on the battlefield, but back home in hospitals. And, well, whoever this guy was who wrote the book, he, he wrote about five key leaders in the Victorian age, and what he did was... It became very popular. As I recall, it had nine printings in the first year and continued to sell. And all he did was disparage the characters, the character of these leaders who had been so appreciated and so honored. And he just ripped them to shreds, including Florence Nightingale. And later he admitted that he made everything up. I have a theory, and I haven't checked it out, that all modern-day journalists are descended from this man. (laughs) Can't prove it, but I'd I'd like to get on Ancestry.com and just check this out. But he absolutely ripped them to shreds. And basically, the great honor and esteem that had been accorded Florence Nightingale and the others... The person that was referring to this book said their reputations dropped by 50%. And as the years went by, it came out what had happened. If this man had have done a book about the Samaritans, it would be impossible for their reputations to drop 50% because they were already at rock bottom with the Jews part of it was because of their history they were a mixed race they originally were Jews who had married into other faiths they had become idolaters all the kings of the north originally when Israel split up The first king was Jeroboam. He was an idolater. He was an idol worshiper, set up golden calves. All the kings of the north, for decades and decades and decades and decades, they all followed Jeroboam. They turned all those people against the Lord God. And then they intermarried, which they were not supposed to do, so they had a mixed religion. It wasn't true Judaism. It was a false. It was a counterfeit. So the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. That's why a Jew would not go into Samaria and a Jew would not for sure have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. They were the untouchables. They were the outcast. So this woman shows up. There came a woman from Samaria, of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food and notice the response of this woman in verse 9. She's astonished. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This was unheard of. What is this? Christianity has always been under attack. It's especially under attack right now. And There is a charge that is leveled against all kinds of accusations made against Christianity. But one of the most popular ones, and one that's been around a while, especially since the 60s and the rise of feminism under Betty Friedan, who is portrayed as a feminist icon who was actually a closeted communist. And committed to the downfall of this nation she basically wrote a book saying that women have been abrogated to second-class status they're not appreciated they can't fulfill their callings and a lot of it was blamed on the judeo-christian heritage and you hear that a lot now that christianity suppresses women christianity is against women christianity is down on women it is uh, it's a curse it's anathema to women nothing could be further from the truth a number of years ago i caught on cnn the funeral of rajiv gandhi who was the prime minister at the time of india he had been assassinated and they were covering his funeral his memorial service held on the banks of the ganges river and it was the traditional hindu service there was a wooden barge His body was on the barge, covered in dry kindling wood, mounds of it, stacked, and then on top of that, flowers. And after the appropriate words were said, a a torch was thrown onto the barge, and it all went up in flames, and his body was cremated. Now, it's been that way in India under Hinduism for thousands of years, with one exception. Before Christianity came to India, You would have the same type of funeral service. You would have the wooden barge. The man's body would be put on the barge, covered with the dry wood, covered with the flowers. But before they'd throw the torch, they would take his living wife and put her on it. And the man would be cremated, and she would be immolated. She died with him so she could go and serve him in the next world. That's not Christianity. Christianity stopped that. The greatest friend of women in all of history is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fact of the matter. And we emulate Christ. We follow Jesus. Ephesians 5, speaking to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus came... Not to do what was best for him but to do what was best for us husbands love your wives just as christ loved the church so husbands are there to serve their wives husbands are there to honor their wives husbands are there to sacrifice for their wives so as christian men we take our cues from the lord jesus christ He's the one who is the model of masculinity. He is the one who is the model of manhood. So we don't take our cues from the world or from this guy or from this guy or from this guy. We take it from the Lord Jesus. And he was the greatest friend of women in all of history, and he still is. He still is. She was shocked that, that he would even talk to her. She, she was She was stunned. Us Guinness uh, has written a lot of good stuff. A number of years ago, he did a book called *The Call*, uh, one of the best books he's ever done. Subtitle: Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life. Uh, I've read it a few times, and I just over the years I just kept reading it. It's just one of those books that are—it's just gold. In chapter 11, he writes of Pablo Picasso, the painter who is still to this day one of the darlings of the left. He is an icon. He writes these words. Pablo Picasso's creative genius towers over 20th century art, but in his relationships, especially with women, he could be a devouring monster. The Minotaur was his own name for himself, and monster was the word used by friends, such as sculptor Alberto Giacometti. When I die, Picasso said, it will be a shipwreck, as when a huge ship sinks, many people all around will be sucked down with it. Sadly, Picasso was right. After he died in 1973, at the age of 91, three of those closest to him committed suicide. His second wife, Jacqueline, an early mistress, Marie Therese, and his grandson, Publito, And several others had psychiatric breakdowns, including his first wife, Olga, and his most famous mistress, Dora Marr. This destructiveness showed itself from his early days. His own mother warned his first wife, I don't believe any woman could be happy with my son. He's available for himself, but for no one else. One of his mistresses wrote, an account called life with picasso and she tells of living for 10 years with this man she was 40 years younger than picasso he was so compelling she wrote that there were moments when it seemed almost a physical impossibility to go on breathing outside his presence he absolutely devoured everyone around him with what was important to him But as Picasso admitted, there were only two kinds of women in his world, goddesses and doormats. And sooner or later, everyone went from the first category to the second. Dora Marr, who preceded Galot as Picasso's mistress, eventually told him, you've never loved anyone in your life. You don't know how to love angelo once told him he was the devil Whereupon picasso branded her with a cigarette held to her cheek stopping only because i may still want to look at you that's not christianity picasso was an avowed follower of nietzsche who was the one who came up with god is dead and those who lived with him and knew him often heard him muttering to himself i am god i am god that's what happens when you reject the god of the bible and you just live for yourself that's not christianity that's not even, that, that, that that that's a million miles from christianity but Christianity gets the bad rap. She meets Jesus face to face, and she's astonished. Verse 9, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, this conversation that Jesus is going to have with this lady, I've got I to warn you about it a little bit. This thing takes different turns. It, it is like uh, going up a mountain road that is so steep that the road is a series of switchbacks. You ever been on a road like that? Outside of San Bernardino, California, there's Lake Arrowhead up in the mountains. And I remember as a kid getting carsick. Every time we drive that, it was just switchback after switchback after switchback after switchback. And it was no better coming down because it's the same road. That's kind of what you've got in this dialogue Jesus has with this Samaritan woman. So you gotta kinda keep alert. That's the thing on a switchback on a mountain road. It's really important that you stay alert because it's a long drop off the side. So we've got to really pay attention to this dialogue and it's it's gonna change, it's gonna shift. Just a warning, just letting you know up front. The woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water so it starts off with jesus asking her for a drink and now he's saying to her you should ask me for a drink and she's not quite getting it because she thinks he's talking about the water that's in this well that had been around there forever it was the best water it was the cleanest water it was a spring fed well. It was about 100 feet down. You had to have a rope with a bucket down about 100 feet. You can still visit it today. And she says in 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She thinks, thinks, because they've been talking about material water, that that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about material water. He's talking about spiritual water. And then she says in 12, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Well, actually he is. But she doesn't know that yet because she's in process. I was watching a video clip of a professor at Tyndale House in England, a a Christian study center and think tank. And one of the things that he said was He's an expert in the Gospels. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John out loud, if you're reading it to someone, it will take you approximately nine hours. So nine hours to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. And then he gave this statistic. He might've said 47.9%. The point was approximately 48% of everything we have in the Gospels is Jesus interacting with people and teaching and conversing with individuals. But when Jesus is talking with unbelievers, he does it in different ways. He never uses a canned presentation. A lot of times we wanna share the gospel and we are and, and you know it's a little intimidating to share your faith with somebody and so it and i've done this i was taught this i was training it we'll get a little booklet that someone's put together and it has some steps and you can take someone through that booklet that might be a, 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 when you're a new believer in entry level that might be a, a way to help you get into a conversation Jesus never did that. He just interacted with the person. He was concerned about them and their needs and their situation. And we're just called to be witnesses. So when you're talking with someone and something just happens and it just shows up, you don't always have a little booklet and, oh gosh, where's my booklet? Well, that doesn't mean you can't say something. I I was... I was at the, the, the health club where, where I swim, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, and there's a guy next to me, a few lockers away, and he's got his locker open, and he's changing clothes, and he's got this huge American flag in his locker. This guy nodded and said, how you doing? I said, fine. I said, man, that's quite a flag you got there. He says, oh, that's not my flag, that's my swimsuit. I said, really? <laughs> Biggest swimsuit I'd ever seen and uh, he said I love the flag and I love America and by his accent I could tell he came here from somewhere else and he said I love this country I said well that's great and he said I'm very proud of that and he said I love wearing my swimsuit with the American flag and I said good for you and he said "We're, we're having we're having difficulties right now in our country I said yeah we are for sure and he said but we will prevail I said, "Well, that'd be a good thing." I don't know this guy from Adam. And he said, "I am sure we will prevail because America is exceptional." And he went on and made a few more comments. Nice guy, you know, he just he just loved America. He'd come from somewhere else. There was a reason he wanted to be here. And he said, "I'm convinced America will survive this." And at a certain point, I said, "Well, I've lived here all my life and I will tell you this, I believe there's no hope for America apart from Jesus. I just felt like I should say that. And then he didn't have much else to say. (laughs) And he just nodded and I nodded. That wasn't in my booklet, I didn't have a booklet. But I thought, I should say it, and I did say it, because it's the truth. America is in trouble because we have walked away from Jesus. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So don't be afraid, and don't be reluctant. Just as it's appropriate as the lord leads just put it out there you never know what's going to happen with a seed do you you never know and you may never know until you get to heaven that's not your job to know your job is just to be a witness you just you're just telling what you what you've seen you just you're just telling what you know the four gospels are four witnesses to what they saw about Jesus. Four eyewitness testimonies. 12, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? 13, Jesus doesn't get diverted. He could have said, I am greater than Jacob, but he doesn't say that. 13, Jesus answered and said to her, now watch the switchback. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. The water coming out of this well, it's the best water around here. It's spring fed. Everyone who drinks of this water, as good as it is, they will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's what you call a switchback. He's not talking about material water. You've got to have water. You've got to have it. It's important. You can't live without it. But there's a spiritual water. And Jesus is pulling a switchback to get her off of the material and off the daily needs and the daily necessities of life and taking her to the spiritual, which is eternal, because every person on the face of the earth is going to live forever forever you do not go out of existence ever he didn't teach reincarnation then you've got another switch back in 15 which leads us to the second point of the outline she meets herself face to face now she's going to meet herself face to face what are we talking about here because now we're talking about eternity So let's pick it up in 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Stop there for a minute. So every day this is her routine. She comes at noon to draw water. Usually women would go to a well with other women. They would draw water for the family. They would draw water for laundry. It was a group endeavor. Women would go, and they would go early in the morning. They, they might go again at dusk as it's cooling down. But they didn't go at high noon because it was the hottest time of the day. Why did she go by herself at high noon? Well, as we're going to see in a little bit, because she was a woman with a sullied reputation and other women didn't want to be around her. They didn't want to be nearer she was an outcast they were an outcast nation but she was an outcast among the outcast so she has a uh, schedule that she follows every day she comes at the hottest time of day by herself to this well and when she's listening to Jesus she responds to him is give me this water in 15 so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw I mean she was coming obviously quite a distance this is—it's kind of rough to do this every single day, but see, she's thinking material water. Sixteen. Here's the switchback. He said to her, "Go call your husband and come here." <laughs> he, he just changed everything because he's cutting right through to the heart. The woman answered and said, and she had to be back on her heels. She wasn't, I'm sure. Why would she be expecting something like that? Out of nowhere, he says, uh, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, here's another switchback. You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Wow. Now he's forcing her to face herself. And she gave him a portion of the truth. Yeah, I, uh, I have no husband. But see, there was more to the story than that. Now, more than likely, uh, there were divorces here. Could have been a death of one of the husbands or two. We don't know. We don't have the information. But more than likely... There was divorce women could not divorce their husbands in this day husbands could divorce the wife so more than likely there had been several divorces and we kind of get a clue that she was an immoral woman because Jesus says the one that you have now is not your husband I mean he all he did was he read her life he read her heart he knew her circumstances he knew all the details she's a sinner romans three twenty-three: for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god we're all sinners all of us and we know we're sinners but we're ashamed of our sin and just as adam and eve in the garden when they realized their sin they tried to cover up we all have things in our lives that we're ashamed of And there are certain things we're especially trying to cover up. And what Jesus does is that Jesus reveals that he knows everything. He knows everything about her. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. Verse 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses... Is acts to the son of Israel. Some people say the Old Testament God. I don't like that Old Testament God. He's a God of wrath. Well, read this. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding. He's abounding. He's like an artesian well in loving kindness. It just keeps bubbling out. It just keeps bubbling out. This is Old Testament. And New Testament, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Watch this. This is phenomenal. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Why not? You ever get upset that you don't see a lot of justice in the world? Thank God he's not been just to you. Thank God he's not been just to me. If he was just, he would deal with us according to our sin. But he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. To those who revere him is the idea. So far as the east is from the west, So far has he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. He knows us. We're sinners. We're fallen. We're broken. Is he on our case? Is he going to get every ounce of justice out of us? No, he came. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's us. He knows everything about us. Nothing's hidden from his sight. Yet he has thoroughly and completely removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. So this is why it's important that we, along with Paul, said forgetting what lies behind. This is why the the enemy is the accuser of the brother. If he can keep bringing up my past, he's going to keep me from being effective for today because I'm mired in the past. I'm chained to the past. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. Even though the Lord says, your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. It's the task of Satan to keep us remembering so that he exhausts us so that we are not able to do the work that our Father has called us to do. This is where you got to talk to yourself, Scripture, this is where you got to talk to yourself about the grace of God. John Newton did not write a hymn called Grace. Did he? He wrote a hymn called what? Amazing Grace. Psalm 103 is about Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And he was a wretch. (laughs) He was. Many thought beyond forgiveness. And many times we think, we look at our lives and our secrets, and maybe nobody else knows, but we know our secrets, and we think we're beyond it. No, you're not beyond it. Read Romans 8. What can separate you from the love of God? There's a whole laundry list. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. This woman's in process. She's interacting. She's never, she's never had any, she's never talked to someone like this before. And he's forcing her to meet herself face to face. I am a sinner. It's interesting in that same chapter where Guinness talks about Pablo Picasso, he has a section, a paragraph on responsibility. And the subtitle is called Responsibility to or for, F O R. You'll see what he means here. I'll, I'll quote him, a couple of paragraphs. Prior to the 19th century, responsibility was assumed as a foundation of virtue. But it was not considered a virtue in itself. Only as the classical virtues disappeared has it become one of the fir- few virtues left. In a reduced pantheon of virtues, it lingers on with such modern virtues as tolerance. You ever heard of that? Yeah. G.K. Chesterton said tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. You're tolerant of everything. There's no right and wrong. Except your own personal view of right and wrong. The notion of responsibility has been severed from its roots, without which it is fated to wither and die. Now catch this. Modern responsibility, contradicting its origins, is all responsibility for and no responsibility to. Put differently, calls to modern responsibility lay heavy burdens on us. We are told we are responsible for ourselves, for our personalities, for our bodies, for our futures, for our families, for our communities, for our environment, for our societies, and for the planet Earth. But this seems ever more hopeless and unfair. On the one hand, many of those things appear bigger, more complicated, and less controllable every year. Think about the last 20 months. On the other hand, we are no longer told to whom we are responsible for those burdens. For modern, secular, freedom-loving people, responsibility to god is out of the picture and responsibility to society is out of the question so how can there continue to be this onslaught of moral insanity and wickedness and evil and things which everyone knows to be wrong but why is it continuing to be spewed out by our leaders in every strat of society because there is no God and there's no responsibility to God or to anyone else. The only responsibility you have is to hold on to the power and to get more, by any means imaginable. That's what drove Picasso. He chewed people up and spit them out. He was a monster. We're being governed by monsters. Not all of them, but many of them. I was hoping I could fit that in somehow. (laughs) I feel better now. But it's true. But here's the deal. There will be a reckoning. There'll be a reckoning. Say, really? Yeah, really. Yeah, you can read uh, Revelation 19. You can read Revelation 20, especially verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from, whom, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the book according to their deeds. No one will escape responsibility. There will be accountability. And all judgment has been given to the Son, to Jesus. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This lady at the well was, when she showed up at the well, she was on her way. She was on her way to a well, but she was also on her way to a lake of fire. But she meets the Son of God. And because of his love for her, before he ever met her, and before she was ever conceived, and before he ever created the world, her name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. That's astonishing. But that's the only way anyone is ever saved. So she admits her sin. All of it? No. But enough. And then our third point, when you get to verse 19, she's meeting God face-to-face. You say, well, she met Jesus face-to-face. Yeah, and Jesus is God. We know that. She didn't know it. She's about to find it out. She says in 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know everything about me, everything. Our fathers, and then she shifts it. Now she's going to shift it a little bit. This is kind of interesting. So she said they're talking about her and her sin, and you know that's uncomfortable. She's got to face herself, and and now it's almost as though she wants to kind of move on and talk about religion. So so because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew, she's going to talk about the differences between what their religions hold to. So in 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. You can go and visit it today. Very steep, very high. And they did build the temple there, and uh, one of the opponents of Nehemiah built the temple on Gerizim. Won't get into that, don't have time to get into it. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you people say that in Jerusalem, the Jews. You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So that's the difference. You know, that's, uh, we say God is here in this, pl- in this building on Gerizim, and you guys say it's at the temple in Jerusalem. She's talking about buildings now. 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming, and whenever Jesus says in John an hour is coming, he's referring to his death, burial, and resurrection. When he says, my hour has not yet come, which you'll say throughout the gospel, my hour has not yet come, the death, burial, and resurrection has not come yet. So that's what he's saying here. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Because I'm going to institute something that is greater than temples. He goes on and says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And that is an accurate statement. The Bible is a Jewish book. The Old Testament is a Jewish book. Abraham was the first Jew. God worked through the Jewish people. Read the book of Romans. Paul talks about that. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. They thought it was only for Jews. And then Peter had that dream where the animals are coming down and he figures out that the Lord is going to take the gospel to Gentiles. That was a whole nother deal in Acts. Jesus is shifting here. Jesus is shifting from buildings, from temples to the human heart. Now watch this. But an hour is coming, and now is, because I'm here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. You could say from the heart and truth. This is internal, it's inside. It's not in a building, it's not rituals, it's not a sacrificial system, it's not incense, it's not smoke, it's not all this pomp and circumstances that you see today in modern cults and false religions that appear to be Christian. That's not Christianity. That's ritualism. That, that's men trying to look spiritual and holy. It's the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. Looks on the pointed head hat. Kiss in the ring. Kiss the ring. The only ring you kiss is the sons, the son of God. And kiss the son, Psalm 2, while there was hope. You kneel and bow before Jesus, not anybody else. When the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, here's where she's meeting God face to face. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is really the first time God comes out Jesus comes out and says, I'm the Messiah, I'm God. Didn't, she knew what it meant. The Samaritans didn't believe the entire Old Testament, but they did believe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those books talk about the Messiah coming. He reveals to her that he's the Messiah, and then he's God. She's got a lot to think about. She's stunned. And then right at that moment in 27, the disciples returned from Costco <laughs> they have been out getting food and they're worried about the supply chain because the ships are backed up on the Mediterranean and they can't oh that's not them that's us oh that's another issue but they suddenly show up there's this dialogue and, and, and just watch the interlude here at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he'd been speaking with a woman of course they were amazed Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Yes, it is. They went out of the city and were coming to him. This is what happens when someone comes to know the Lord. We saw it earlier in John, when someone meets Jesus When their heart is changed by Jesus, when they believe he is God, he's the God man, he's the one who will die in their place, when they receive him. What happens is, as soon as there is understanding and their eyes are open and he changes them, then they want to go and tell someone else and say, Come with me, you've got to meet him. That's evangelism, because their heart's been changed. Look down at 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I have done, and he still loves me. And he's still for me. And he has saved me. And he has redeemed me. He knows everything about me. This is the gospel. There's nothing greater in the world than this. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, 40, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. Watch this. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. What's interesting is among the outcasts, Who did he go to in the previous chapter? Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. They were the elite of Israel. They were the religious leaders. They were the bureaucracy. They were the Ivy League boys. They were the cream of the cream. And what did the Pharisees consistently do about Jesus? They rejected what he said because they wanted a political Messiah to get them out from under Rome. They didn't like him. They didn't want him. They hated his guts. In fact, they conspired to kill him. But here he is among the outcasts, and what do they do? They embrace him. Can you stay two more days? Oh, yeah, we believe because what you said now, we believe because we know he's the savior of the world. He is the savior of the world. It's interesting, and I'll close with this. In Guinness's book, he tells the story of a woman who was his great-great-grandmother. Her name is Lucretia D'Aster. When she was 18 years old, she had two small children. She was standing by a fast-moving river contemplating committing suicide because her husband had just been killed in a duel. She, she, she was devastated, she was from another country. She, she was in absolute despair, she had no means of income, she had no hope for the future, she couldn't provide for her children, she had no family. And for some reason, as she was standing on that bank of the river contemplating taking her life, she looked up across the river and there was a soft rolling hill And there was a young farmer with a draft horse and he was plowing his field and she started watching him as he would plow straight furrows and she suddenly began to admire that man's character because she knew that he was not aware that she was watching no one else was around he was just doing his job and he was doing it right And she thought to herself, why should I collapse in self-pity and take my life? I have two little children. Like that man, I should plow ahead and do what's right. She didn't know Christ. But, a few weeks after this brush with death, she heard the gospel and she came to Christ. A few years later, oskinus writes, She met and married my great-great-grandfather, Captain John Groton Guinness, youngest son of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin Brewer, and a former officer under a fellow Irishman, Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington. If it had not been for that duel, our side of the family would not have come into being. If it had not been for the plowman, the tragedy of the dueling husband would have been followed by the tragedy of the duelist widow. She had been arrested by work done in a special way. My my great-great-grandmother was unusual for seven reasons, including the fact that she conscientiously prayed for her descendants down through a dozen generations. Jesus talked with the woman at the well, but Jesus also reached out to the young woman at the river who was contemplating taking her life. See, this is what Jesus does. He reaches down to individuals who have lost hope. And all we can see is what's in front of us. But you see, what he sees is long-term. What he sees is eternity. What he sees is forever. What a great God. Our Father, we thank you for this truth. Encourage us as we are in these difficult times that you have a plan, that the gospel is true, that it's increasing all over the world, and that your purpose will not be thwarted. Give us peace and give us rest tonight.